Hey, hope everyone's doing well out there, uh, staying safe, not going too stir crazy. I don't know what week this is of doing this. It just seems like time is kind of uh, taking a back seat. So um, I haven't told a funny story in a while, so let me tell you a, a, a kind of a humorous story. And I won't be able to tell if you actually think it's funny or not because there's no one in the room right now, but hopefully it'll get you a good laugh at home. So we have a couple of iPads at our house. I have two daughters, a, a seven-year-old who's about to be eight, and then I have an 11-year-old. And um, one of the iPads is, is an old iPad. And then I got one um, sometime last year when I was doing some writing and traveling. And, and so I got another iPad. But basically, our girls play games and they do homework on it and stuff like that. So to download anything on our iPads, you have to use my thumbprint because I don't want the girls to, you know, accidentally get something inappropriate or want to see everything that they're doing. So I have to use the, the thumbprint thing. And so uh, I'm working one day, uh, last week, I think it was. I get a call from Alicia and she says, hey, are you paying attention to what games you're letting the girls get on the iPad? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course. You know, I look at them, make sure they're okay and, and do my thumbprint and, and they get their games. And she goes, well, uh, Vi, that's our seven-year-old, about to be eight-year-old, downloaded a game about farming. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, all right. So I, I, I guess I let her do that. And my wife goes, well, it's farming weed and then selling it after it grows and uh, you grow it to a certain thing and then you sell the weed. And I was like, oh, wow. So I've just kind of enabled my daughter to, to download a game where she not only grows drugs, but sells them as well. So um, we deleted that game and I've learned now I have to actually look really closely at the iPad before I give my thumbprint. But um, hopefully you got a good chuckle out of that. So if you haven't been with us though, this week we're getting back to the book of Matthew. And we finished off two weeks ago. We were in chapter seven. We cut chapter seven in half, and we're going to do the same with chapter eight. But we cut chapter seven in half, and in the second half of chapter seven, we come to the conclusion of a part of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And basically what this was is Jesus went up on a, on a hillside. It says mountainside. I don't know if it was a big mountain or just kind of more of a hill. Jesus goes up on the side of this hillside. He brings his 12 disciples, his 12 closest friends, if you will. He starts to teach and train them, and he, he starts off with a small crowd, his 12, and by the time the Sermon on the Mount is done, this huge crowd has, has kind of come in, and now he's talking to, we don't even know how many, but it was a large crowd, the Bible says. Now, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, we ask this question because Jesus kind of proposes this question. He says there's two kinds of people. There's people that build their foundation on sand, which is sinking and shifts. And, and when we build our foundation on something like that, just a light storm can come in and knock everything down. And then he said there's another kind of person that builds their house on a rock. And so what we basically talked about two weeks ago is we asked ourselves, do we build our foundation on Christ? Have we had that encounter with the rock, if you will, right? And have we built our lives on something that is sturdy and that when the storms come, it's not gonna knock it over? This week, we're gonna talk about this and we're gonna do um, about two-thirds of chapter eight. We're gonna get through quite a bit of it, but, but not all of it. And we're gonna ask this question. Are we stalling from becoming true followers of Jesus? Are we stalling, right? Are we making excuses? Are we trying to get some other things done before we really jump into this? And so we'll get a little bit personal today, okay? But this is kind of what Jesus does, right? He kind of gets to the core of us and 
makes us address the hard questions about ourselves and about what we think and believe. And that's kind of where we're going to be going a little bit today. So if you're joining us, um, we're in the book of Matthew. That's in the New Testament. We're in chapter 8. We should have notes on the app. We should have notes on the website. If you click on the app or click on the uh, website, the notes are on there. If you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading a little bit, and I'll go back and break it down to the best of my abilities. And then everything should be on the screen when you're watching. My slides from my PowerPoint will pop up periodically as I'm teaching. So we should have everything ready to go. Okay, so I'm going to pray. We'll jump into Matthew chapter 8 right after the the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is about to get uh, into the ditches, right? He's going to get into the gritty part of his uh, ministry while he was on earth. Okay, so let me pray. We'll jump into this and I hope it blesses you. Okay, Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We just want to tell you, thank you. Lord, thank you, God, uh, for keeping us safe during this time. Lord, thank you for keeping people healthy during this time. Lord, even though this has been a very awkward time, uh, Lord, we appreciate maybe the, the slowing down of life a little bit so we can focus on what's truly important. Father, I pray that you help all of us that are struggling with fear or anxiety or questions or whatever the, whatever the issues may be that have arised during this time. God, Lord, help us during these times. Father, we pray for every church in our city, in our county, in our state, nation. God, all the churches, Lord. And we pray for our church, Father, and we can't wait to be together again in this building, worshiping together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We give it all to you, God. Keep your hand on us as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter eight, I'm gonna read a little bit. We'll go back and break it down. Okay, here we go. Matthew says, when he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, so what's happening here? Like I said before, Jesus just came off the mountain, started off with a small crowd, ended up with a really, really big crowd. They followed him down. Why were the people following Jesus? We're going to see all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the reason people followed Jesus was because his teaching was profound, because he was healing people, both spiritually, physically, mentally healing people, and that he had authority, right? Obviously, this man had authority from God. So right when he comes off the mountain, a man with leprosy runs up to him, and now we're going to see Jesus, like I said before, get into the trenches, we're now going to see the nasty side, the dirty side of ministry, not just teaching on a hill, right? We're going to see him get into the stuff that is very, very difficult. So to have leprosy in Jesus's time was probably the worst thing you could have. So if you were alive and if you remember this from the, from the 80s and 90s, very similar to the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s, before we knew much about AIDS and HIV, People in the United States thought that if you even came in contact, right, if you used the same bathroom or if someone sneezed on you or touched you, that you could get this deadly disease. That's how it was with leprosy 
in Jesus's time. But in Jesus's time, leprosy wasn't just a biological fear. It was also a spiritual fear. Because if someone touched someone with leprosy, not only were they afraid of getting this disease, it made them ceremonially unclean. They couldn't go to the temple. So that made them social outcasts and that made them spiritual outcasts. So the leper approaching Jesus was a huge taboo. He was not allowed to do that. The leper was not allowed to do that. And Jesus, being a person that didn't have leprosy and being a teacher, he was not allowed to touch him. So both of these people were acting socially inappropriate, if you will. But it shows how strong the leper's faith was that he would, would, would not care at all what people thought, and he would approach Jesus. And when he approaches Jesus, he uses a very important title. He says, Lord. Now, the word Lord was used as a title of respect. You would say Lord to a lot of people that you respected. But this was the most highly respected person to this leper, right? And he said, Lord. And the leper had full confidence in Jesus's ability, but he didn't know if Jesus was willing. So he says, I know you can do it, Lord, but I'm not sure if you want to do it. And so when Matthew writes that Jesus stretches out his hand, he reaches out, it's this very dramatic way of saying that Jesus didn't care what everyone thought. He touched the leper, right? He healed the leper, but it says he reached out his hand and he touched him. Because Jesus cares nothing about societal taboos. He doesn't care about what's popular. Jesus cares about people. He doesn't care what the outsiders think about him. He cares about healing and touching the lives of people that want to be touched by him, who want to be healed by him. So Jesus broke the societal taboos. And after he healed the man with leprosy, Jesus says, don't tell anyone else, but go show the priests. Now, the reason why Jesus would do this, and he does it several times in the book of Matthew, he would heal someone and then say, don't tell anyone about it. Why? After Jesus healed the man with leprosy, Jesus knew that if he went out and told the entire town about this, that what was already a pretty big crowd was going to get so big that he would not be able to even spend any time with his 12 disciples. And so Jesus's first objective during this time when he's doing ministry was to train up his 12. And so this is why he went out and he said, after he healed the man with leprosy, don't tell anyone except for the priests. So why just the priests? Well, Jesus was kind of letting the religious community know, the ones that should have been looking for the Messiah, that he had come and he is already starting to do work, okay? Let's get to the next part. So when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. Jesus said to him, am I to come and heal him? Lord, second time he said that. The centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from the east and the west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, go as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that very moment. Now, this is an extremely interesting chunk of chapter eight. So Jesus went to an area called Capernaum. Now, if you had a map of Israel in front of you, Capernaum would have been northeast Israel. And this area was kind of a a base for Jesus for a while, right? He kind of worked out of this area for a while, would travel, come back to this area. And shortly after he healed the man with leprosy, Jesus was met in Capernaum by a Roman soldier, not just a soldier, a centurion, which was a big deal. And this man was seeking healing, not for himself, but for his servant. Now, here's what's interesting about this section. This was a Roman man, right? So not a Jewish person. He should not have been looking for uh, the, the Messiah. But this Roman centurion, centurions were extremely respected. They were kind of the backbone of the Roman army. If you know anything about the military, this would have been like a sergeant major, right? Not at the very top, but a very well-respected, kind of uh, a very influential backbone of an army. That's what the centurions were. And centurions were so important and so respected that even the Bible paints centurions in a positive light. You can prove me wrong on this, but I I think I studied it pretty well. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the Bible say anything negative about Roman centurions. So they were pretty good guys. This one was obviously a very good guy. But here we are breaking yet another social taboo. The centurion knew that the Jews hated him, right? The Jews did not like the Romans. The Romans didn't like the Jews. So this Roman centurion kind of broke social taboos. Why? He did that because he was desperate for his servant to be healed. And his desperation for his friend and coworker to be healed outweighed what he thought about the crowds, right? Or what the crowds thought about him, I should say. So the Roman now is the one breaking social taboos. So here's what's interesting. Why did Jesus respond to this Roman? Jesus responded to this Roman centurion because this man obviously loved his servant. He loved this person that worked with him. This Roman centurion realized that he was inadequate to help his friend. So he needed help from someone else. And then we see that he was extremely humble. A man of authority, a man of power and influence, but he was a humble person, especially in front of Jesus. And these three things are what prompted Jesus to help this centurion out. Not just help him out. He really compliments this man here in a moment. But Jesus says this. He looks at the centurion. He says, do you want me to come to your house and heal him? Right? Am I to come and heal your servant? Now, there's another social taboo that is broken. For a Jew to go into a Roman's house would have been unthinkable, even more so for a teacher like Jesus to go into a Roman's house. Now, why? The reason why is over time, 
the Jewish people had taken the instructions from God in the Old Testament and from Moses, right? They had taken the instruction from Moses to not mingle with other religions and they took it too far. So basically what the Jews had done at this point in the Bible is they had passed laws and created social taboos that we are not to associate with anyone that doesn't believe like us. And that's not what God wanted. God didn't want us to compromise our faith, but we are to go out to people that don't believe like us and we are to build relationships in the hope that they will eventually believe like us. So we still do this today, don't we? We go to extremes. Either we're not mature enough in our faith, so we have friends that don't believe like us and we start to compromise our beliefs or we just isolate ourselves from everyone. That's called the Christian bubble, right? We don't wanna hang out with anyone that's different from us. Neither one of these extremes are the mature Christian response. Yes, we are to be the light that goes out into the darkness, right? To make friends with all kinds of people, but we have to be connected enough to the word of God and to God himself that we don't let the darkness infiltrate our lives, but we hopefully let the light infiltrate their lives. I always say we're not to be isolated, we're to be insulated, insulated by the Holy Spirit so we can go out into the darkness. That's what Jesus did. So after Jesus talks with this centurion for a bit, it says that Jesus was amazed. The centurion understood authority. He understood humility. And Jesus said, whoa, that's what I've been looking for. That is awesome. And it amazed Jesus. Now, without going too deep into this, because you could teach whole lessons on this over and over and over again, Jesus was not above being surprised. I know he knew everything, saw everything, because Jesus was both fully God and he was fully man. And because he was both, he had all the knowledge of God, but he also had human experiences, some human experiences. So Jesus had been looking for faith and he found it in the most unlikely source, a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, right? A Gentile, not a Jew. And so what Jesus says after this is very interesting. We gotta be careful with this too. The centurion probably didn't understand the full identity of Jesus. The centurion probably didn't know exactly who he was talking to, but he understood that God was working through this man, Jesus. And so this kind of faith should have been seen or should have been executed by the Jewish people. And I'm not trying to pick on Jewish people this time, but the leaders of the Jews at this time, they were the ones who studied the scripture. They should have known who Jesus was. They didn't recognize Jesus, but this Roman centurion started to. And so Jesus says, the people that should have known better, but didn't recognize me. In fact, not only did they not recognize him, they rejected him. He says, those people are gonna be thrown into outer darkness. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we should be anti-Jew. It doesn't mean that we should be anti-people different from us. It also doesn't mean that Christians replace the Jewish people. It's called replacement theology, and that's not good theology. But what it means is this. It means that anyone who gives their life to Christ, right, despite of where you're from, despite uh, your pedigree, it is those of us that give our lives to Jesus Christ that will inherit the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So Jesus looks at the centurion and he says, go, everything you want me to do, if you want me to heal your servant, he's healed at this very moment, right? So go back to him. By the time you get there, your servant's gonna be okay. So just like I said a second ago, 
We learn from the story of the centurion that the kingdom of heaven is not promised to a particular people in a, in a certain region. It's not promised to a particular people who have a certain pedigree or heritage. The kingdom of God is reserved and promised to anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. So the question that, that we need to address is not who are we? right? Where am I from? What color am I? What were my parents and my parents' parents? What was their faith? No, no, no. The question isn't who am I? The question is who is he? And do I believe in everything he says he is? Doesn't matter where I was born. Doesn't matter the color of my skin. It matters if I put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we learn from the centurion in this section, okay? So we've seen a man with leprosy get healed. We saw a Roman centurion servant get healed, and now we're going to keep moving forward. Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, he took, he himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. So we go from a leper to a centurion, and now it gets a little bit more personal. One of the followers of Jesus, the guy that Jesus eventually hands kind of the keys to the kingdom over to, Peter, his mother-in-law is sick. And so they go to Peter's mother-in-law's house, or Peter's house, I can't remember. Peter's house, there you go. And at this time, we see again that Jesus is going to heal by touch. He walks in, sees this woman who has a fever. He walks in and touches her, and she is instantly healed. Now, here is yet another social taboo that is broken. The fact that a religious leader or spiritual leader teacher, rabbi, whatever you want to say, they would never lay their hand on a woman. They would never touch a woman. The reason why is if a religious leader touched a woman that was on her menstrual cycle, it would make the religious leader, the priest, unfit to serve in the temple. So they wouldn't even risk it, right? Again, Jesus didn't care. Jesus didn't care about societal taboos. He saw the woman needed to be healed, and he touched the woman and healed her. So this is kind of interesting, and maybe I'm looking too much into this, but it says that right after she was healed, she got up and began to serve Jesus. Now, I don't know if, if there's more to this, if Matthew meant more to this than what's actually on the page, but, but it jumped out at me. Maybe this is a metaphor, maybe a huge metaphor, this very simple statement that right after she was touched by Jesus, she got up and served Jesus. Maybe we should pull from that, that when God saves us, when God heals us, when God shows us grace and love, our natural response should be to get up and to be obedient and to serve Jesus, right? Our natural response after being saved should be to be obedient to the word of God and to serve God in his kingdom and whatever he wants us to do. And that's what she did. So she's healed. She's serving that time at night, it said the same evening, people were being brought by the house, Peter's house, who were demon-possessed. And it says that Jesus drove out the demons with a word, right? Not like Hollywood movies where it took 10 hours and heads are spinning around and black goo is shooting out of little girls' mouths. Nothing like that. They would come in, Jesus would say a word, psh, demons are gone. 
So we have to be careful when it comes to demonic possession. I believe in demonic possession. I have seen demonic possession. I've prayed for people who I believe were demonically possessed. But we need to be careful with that. Though there is demonic possession in our world today, probably more than we even think, I think that most people are not demonically possessed. I think a lot of people are oppressed by evil. They have let evil be oppressive in their lives. And a lot of people who even call themselves Christians, they don't think that they have the authority because of Jesus to speak a word like Jesus did to drive demons away. But listen, if you are filled with God's Holy Spirit, we are given the authority. We'll see later on in the, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. We are given the authority by God to speak his name and is in, in his name say, demons, you have to be gone. We have the authority to do that. But listen, let me tell you this. There are also times in the Bible when people were not filled with the Holy Spirit. They thought they had a relationship with God, but they didn't. And they would try, try to drive out demons and it didn't work out so well for them, right? A couple of instances that we'll come across later on in the book of Matthew. So at the end of this little section that I just read, we have a quote from the book of Isaiah. Now, Matthew quoted Isaiah, a book that was written seven, 800 years before Jesus Christ came onto the scene because Matthew was seeing before his very eyes the words of the prophet coming true. All the things that Jesus was doing, Matthew's like, oh my gosh, I remember studying that as a child from the book of Isaiah and it is happening right in front of us. What's an important lesson to learn from that? The only way to recognize the biblical Jesus is to read the Bible. Let me hang on that just for a second. What is important about that is, is we have so many fabricated ideas of who God, who Jesus Christ is, right? And so we come up with, well, I don't think Jesus would do that. I think Jesus would do this. Jesus would be a Republican. Jesus would be a Democrat. He would be a socialist. No, 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 he wouldn't do that. And so we have all these kind of fabricated ideas of who we think Jesus is. But the only way we know who the biblical Jesus is is by the Bible. And Matthew, who was knowledgeable, at least about the, the book of Isaiah, we see, because he was knowledgeable about the scripture, he could identify who the real Jesus was. It's the same thing for us today. We will not know the biblical Jesus unless we read our Bible. All right, last part. So when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the skies have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another disciple said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That sounds like a really harsh thing to say. Let's get into that. So Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds. Again, by this time, the crowds had amassed all over again, gotten bigger and bigger. And like I said before, Jesus's most important objective during this time was to train the 12 disciples. So when the crowd started getting so big that he couldn't focus on the 12, he said, we got to get away from the crowds. We got to move away from this. Now, there is an extremely important leadership lesson here, and the lesson is this, and this applies to everyone. 
No one person can do it all. I know Jesus was God in the flesh, but he knew because he was, I don't want to say limited by his body at that time, but Jesus was in one place at one time for 33 years, right? Jesus knew that he was not going to be the one to travel the entire world and spread the gospel to the entire world. So Jesus took 12 guys and only 11 of those 12 went on to do what they were supposed to do because humanity, sometimes people fail and fall off. But Jesus knew I have to train disciples who will go out and make more disciples. It's the same thing with us. One pastor, one leader, one boss, one whatever cannot do it all. But if we will train some and then those people train some, you see it gets exponentially bigger. Jesus knew this and he teaches us this in the gospel of Matthew. So the order to cross the sea, it was the Sea of Galilee. The order to cross the sea would have limited the amount of people, because only so many fit in a boat, right? It would have limited the amount of people going with him to a very committed few. Now, one of these people that wanted to go with him was a very educated scribe who was a teacher of the law. And this teacher of the law came up to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, what's interesting about this is most of the scribes, most of the Pharisees, most of the Sadducees, I call them the bad guys of the gospel, right? Though most of them were bad, we see exceptions. One right here, right, with this man that wants to go with Jesus. We'll see more, more like Joseph of Arimathea, and we'll see, we'll see more of these coming up later in the gospel. But the majority of these guys hated Jesus. But this one was obviously a little bit different. So we don't know what ends up happening with this guy. But this is Jesus's response. This guy said, Jesus, I will go wherever you go. Whatever you do, I'll do it with you. And Jesus wanted to let him know that following, this is so important. Jesus wanted this man to know that following Jesus Christ was not just miracles and blessings. It wasn't just sitting on a hillside hearing a bunch of beautiful sayings. It wasn't just seeing people healed. It wasn't just worshiping. It wasn't just fun times. It was a life dedicated to sacrifice. It was a life dedicated to sacrifice that would have potential hardships. It would have potential poverty. It would have potential deprivation. So let's get personal, right? How many of us say, how many of us watching right now I would go wherever Jesus tells me to go. I'll do whatever he wants me to do. I am a follower of Jesus, a Christ follower. I'm a Christian. Now let's get personal. We often proclaim that, but do we really understand the cost of following Jesus? Do we really understand, right? That it may cost us our lives one day. It might cost us our livelihood. It may cost us our popularity, may even cost us our family and friends. Do we understand that? Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to pick up a cross. And we think that's just a metaphor. One day it might be literal. We don't know. It is for a lot of Christians in Egypt right now who are literally getting nailed to crosses, Coptic Christians. Do we understand the cost of discipleship? Do you know 10 of those 12 disciples were violently murdered? violently murdered. The only ones that weren't were Judas because he killed himself. And John, he was the only one to die a natural death, but he was even boiled alive and exiled. These men suffered greatly for their faith. And these are the ones that we hear about in the Bible. There are countless millions that have suffered for their faith throughout the centuries. Do we understand what it means to follow Jesus? 
So listen, following Jesus is not impossible. It is possible. But being a true Christian is a life dedicated not to our wants and desires, but to God's wants and desires. We have to put ourselves aside. And I know that's not easy. It's not easy to put God first. It's not easy to put other people first. But this is the mark of a true Christian. Here's where we mess up, though. We fail to see perspective. This is what Jesus asks us to do. Jesus says, sacrifice for me during this short period of time, right? That's our lives. During this short period of time, give your life to me, sacrifice for me and other people. And Jesus says, I will give you eternity. I will give you contentment and joy in everything you could ever desire for eternity. But we're so myopic. What that means is we can only see things that are right in front of our face, right? My optometrist sister-in-law would appreciate that. We can only see things right in front of our face, myopic. So we don't see that God has promised us eternity, which is a lot longer than, let's say we live to be 90. But if we dedicate our entire lives to God on the short end, he gives us everything on the long end. But we miss that perspective. We don't see it. And so when we call ourselves Christians, it means that we are trying to be like Jesus. The word Christian was a derogatory term used in Antioch, right, in the book of Acts, and it literally meant little Christs. These people think they are little Jesuses. And that's what the word literally means. So Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, which means that for 33 years, Jesus lived like us. The reason that is important is Jesus becoming a human showed us how to live, and he showed us that how to live, like him, involves sacrifice. But going back to the perspective thing, from Jesus' sacrifice, it led to eternal salvation for us. It led to eternal contentment for us. A little bit of sacrifice here. I'm not saying the cross was a little sacrifice, but I'm talking about time-wise, right? There was sacrifice here, but the rewards go on forever. It's a perspective issue. So now we have had, what, four people encounter God, encounter Christ throughout this lesson? And now we have the last one. We know very little about this guy either. The scribe walks up, says, I'll go wherever you go. He says, well, foxes have holes and birds have nests. We don't know where we're going to sleep tonight, but you're welcome to come. And then the last person that we see in this part that we've read, he walks up and he says, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I got to take care of, of my estate. I've got to take care of my father's burial. I've got to take care of these things that are going on. Now, more than likely, this man that came up to Jesus at the end, his father was not dead. This was a very typical stalling tactic in Jesus's time. What, it, what he meant by it, he, he's saying, I, I need to go bury my father. He meant that I have to get my family affairs in order and then I'll follow you. I have to get my will taken care of. I have to get my estate taken care of. I have to make sure that all my family's taken care of. I have to make sure I get these other things done. And Jesus, when I get those other things done, I'm gonna follow you. So don't we do something similar? This is my last slide before my last couple of points. But don't we do this? We often say, well, God, I will follow you, but I gotta get this job situation going. I got to get X amount of dollars in the bank before I'll give. I got to take care of these things. Man, we got travel baseball. We'll start going to church when travel baseball is done. You don't have to do that now. But anyways, we have all these different things that we say, God, once I bury this, I'll address you. And Jesus' response, 
Let dead people bury dead people. But if you want to be alive in me, come on, right? And so Jesus cuts to the core. And what sounds kind of harsh and mean is he's saying, listen, you can handle all your affairs and all that stuff, but first follow me. And then you can get to the secondary stuff. So let's talk about kind of the high points of the first half of chapter eight. The first one is this. We see in chapter eight that Jesus interacts with people that society deems unclean, the lowest of the low. <laughs> Who is this in our society? And, and, and let me challenge you for a second because the first thing that people go to is they're like, man, the homeless. Now listen, we love the homeless. We've been serving the homeless. We have given tons of money to, to work with the homeless. We have never missed a weekend of feeding the homeless. We, we have poured a lot into the homeless community, into our, our, uh, our, our city. But that's not the most unclean. That's not the most despised or unlovable people in society right now. What about the racist? What about the chauvinist? What about the rich business people? We hate them because we're envious and jealous. And What about those people? Do we love those people? Do we love the hardcore right-wing nutcase or the hardcore left-wing nutcase? Do you Republicans love Democrats? Do you Democrats love Republicans? Do we pray for our enemies? Do we love those that persecute us, like Jesus goes on to say later? Do we do that? See, Jesus interacted with the lowest of the low. Do we do it? Do we love the ones that society has said are unlovable? Are we willing to touch unclean people, if you will? Do we build relationships with non-believers? And a lot of you are like, heck yes, I do. Do you build relationships with non-believers while still maintaining biblical integrity? I hope that all of us have relationships with people that don't believe like us. But I also hope that all of us never compromise our faith in order to fit in with people. So the question is this, do we have the guts to live our faith? Well, yes, Corey, I show everyone how good of a Christian I am all the time. Do you teach other people about your faith? Well, I don't want to shove it down people's throat. Listen, I'm glad that we live our faith. Whenever people say, well, I just live it. I just live it. Okay, well, the Bible says that no one's going to know the gospel unless they're taught the gospel. That means we have to speak it too. Yes, should we live it? Absolutely. But we also need to tell people about Jesus Christ. Tell people about the principles of the word of God because if we don't, they're not going to be able to submit and live those things and be saved. Do we understand the cost of discipleship? This last part that we covered, I want to follow you. Well, it may not be fun. Well, I want to go with you, but I got to take care of these affairs. You can take care of those affairs later. Follow me first. Do we understand the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? To be a disciple of Jesus means that we walk in a similar manner as Jesus. That's very simple. Jesus walked in sacrifice. Jesus walked sacrificially, knowing that sacrifice now yields a great reward later. So to live as a follower of Jesus means that we live a life of sacrifice. We give ourselves to him, we give ourselves to others, knowing that one day we will receive a reward greater than anything we've given up in this life. Do we understand that? Have we become myopic in our faith, nearsighted in our faith? Has our perspective become a worldly one? Like all these clowns you guys watch on TV. Man, God wants you to have your best life now. 
Bull crap. God wants you to have your best life for eternity. And so it's not about having your best life right now. This life is going to end. The Bible says all these things are going to burn. It's not about having your best life now. It's about having your best life for eternity. So are we looking at a relationship with Jesus as a worldly temporal one? Or are we looking at a relationship with Jesus as an eternal one? What we do now echoes forever. It's not about receiving our reward now. It's about us receiving a greater reward later. And are we willing to leave it all for his kingdom? Are we willing to do that? Do we understand the cost of following Jesus? And then the last thing is this. Man, and I put this in orange because I I really hope this sticks with you because it's a very, very hard-hitting question. We love the idea of a savior, but we don't really like the idea of a Lord. What does that mean? All the people in this chapter almost, almost all of them said, Lord, 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 Lord. The word Lord there is, a, is, is, is symbolic of submission. You're the one in charge, Lord. You're the one greater than me, Lord. You're the one that has all the answers, Lord. I want to give everything to you, Lord. I submit to you. We don't do that. We love the idea of a savior that comes in and bails us out because we've screwed up. We hate the idea of submitting to God, saying, Lord, whatever you want, I'll do it. So if we are honest, if we're honest, if we're honest, do we love the blessings of God and the escape of going to an eternal hell more than we actually love the savior himself? Do we love the benefits of following God more than we love God? Do we love the fact that we're not going to have to suffer for eternity more than we love God? Do we love the gifts more than the giver? If we're being honest, be honest. Then the last thing is this. Is it about what God can do for us? Is coming to church on the weekend, is watching this right now, is reading your Bible, is giving to the church or serving the community, is it more about what God can do for me? Or are we like Habakkuk when Habakkuk says, God, even if the fig tree never blooms, even if the olive branches never produce any fruit or, or, or any of that again, I'm still gonna follow you. Who is it about? Is it about me or is it about him? Do we long to live in a way that honors and submits to the Lord, no matter what the cost is for us? Do we understand, or are we just stalling? God, I'll get to you later. Let me take care of these things first, and then I'll start going to church. Let me get this much money in my bank account, and then I'll start giving. Let me start doing these things, and then I'll be faithful. Guys, we're not promised tomorrow. We need to stop putting off today, right? We need to stop putting off and pushing things forward. We need to address our sin now. We need to address our relationship or lack thereof with God now. We need to stop putting it off. Who's this about though? Is it about us or is it about him? Listen, if you're watching this and you are not a believer, or maybe you're just on the fence. Maybe you've slipped away from a relationship with God, wherever you are. If you have any questions, we have multiple pastors on staff. We have people who would love to give you a phone call or we can FaceTime with you or we can Zoom with you or whatever the case may be during all this, this craziness. 
if you will send us an email at info at experiencecc.com, I promise you we'll get back to you. You can tell us whatever the situation is, or you don't even have to tell us the whole thing, but hey, I need to talk to a pastor. We will get you connected. We will reach out to you, okay? If you are listening to me right now and you need prayer, same thing. Send us an email at info at experiencecc.com. Or you can send an email to Muhammad at Muhammad at experiencecc.com. We would love to get with you. We would love to pray with you. We would love to, to reach out and connect with you, okay? The last thing is this. If you're watching this right now and you are a Christian, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but maybe some things in this lesson today have kind of convicted you a little bit. Maybe we've made it more about us than we have about God. Maybe we're stalling and we haven't given God everything we want to give him or should give him. Maybe we say we'll follow him wherever he wants us to go, but when the rubber meets the road, we're like, eh, maybe not. Here's the beauty. God is so gracious and loving that not only did Jesus come and give us the example of how to live, Jesus died for our sins. We talked about it last weekend. And because of his blood and because of the sacrifice he made, if we just ask God to forgive us, everything we've done wrong up to this moment is gone. So right now, if you're taking communion with me at home, if you don't have this, this is fine. You can still repent. But what the bread and the wine do is they help us remember what Jesus has done for us. So we have an opportunity to say, God, we're sorry. We have an opportunity right now to say, God, I have not been 100% in. God, I have been selfish. I have loved the benefits of following you more than you. We have the opportunity to really recognize that and repent for that and move forward today. So if you have communion, let's, let's do this together. Lord Jesus, God, we want to thank you for your body that was broken, Lord. We want to thank you, God, for your body, Lord, that, that wore a crown of thorns and was beat and whipped and abused. We want to pray, God, that, that we, we fully understand the sacrifice you made for us, God, so we can be healed spiritually, physically, mentally. So, God, we take this bread right now as a remembrance of your body that was given for us. God, we also take this wine, Lord, to remember your blood that was shed for us on the cross. The Lord, right now, God, as we're speaking, as people are listening, that whatever sin is in our heart, we can say, Father, we're sorry. And that because of the blood you shed on the cross, Lord, you forgive. And Lord, your word says our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Thrown into the deep sea, your word says. Never to be brought up against us again, God. Lord, we take this wine as a remembrance of your blood shed for us on the cross. Father, Lord, we love you. God, during this time, Lord, let us reflect, let us repent, let us be humble, God. Lord, let us be like the centurion and the man with leprosy, God. And Lord, let us just, just submit and say, Lord, whatever you want, God. We know you're able, Lord, we just pray that you're willing, God. Reach out to us. Help us. Strengthen us. Guide us, God. For anyone that's not a believer listening to me, Lord, I pray that something was said today, God, that got their attention. For those of us that have gotten off track, Lord, I pray that something today, God, will, will push us to get back on a road that moves towards you, Jesus. Father, we love you, God. Keep your hand on everyone listening to this right now. Bless us, God. Keep us strong. Keep our perspective, your perspective, God. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Love you guys. Hope to see you in person soon. Thank you.